Hi, this is Paula. And I'm Joseph, and you're listening to Life Lived Better. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We are still talking this week about dependent personality disorders. So let's get into it. There are other conditions that involve dysfunctional love, like dependent personality disorder, sex addiction, and erotomania. Mm-hmm. Did I say that right? You did. You did. <laughs> there are actually 10 types of personality disorders when we look at like the mental health uh, diagnoses book. And a person with dependent personality disorder, they kind of suffer from like a needy neediness. And it's an over-reliance on other people. So their emotional and physical needs are dependent on people who they're closest to. So that's what dependent personality disorder kind of, that's kind of the gist of it. The actual definition or clinical definition of dependent personality disorder is a pervasive and excessive need to be cared for. And that leads to submissive and clinging behaviors and also a fear of separation. So that pattern usually is going to emerge in early adulthood and the dependent and submissive behaviors are designed to elicit caregiving and it arises from the perception the person has of being unable to function adequately on their own that they feel they have to have somebody else taking care of them they seek constant approval right like Mm -hmm. constantly are looking for reassurance and everyday decisions can't make everyday decisions like what to wear what to eat Can you imagine how many decisions you make in a day right? like that? And if you have to have someone else, that would even, that would be hard to even have a job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know how you move through life without being able to make day-to-day basic Mm -hmm. decisions, like what to wear. Yeah. And I've been around people who need like excessive reassurance, not just Mm -hmm. some reassurance when you're starting something, but excessive. It is tiring. Exhausting. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And people with this personality disorder tend to be pretty passive. They usually allow other people to take the initiative, take the responsibility in, in, in all the major life areas. So an adult with this disorder, they're typically dependent either still on a parent or a spouse to decide for them. Where do you live? What kind of job you should have? Who to be friends with? That's a lot for an adult. Mm-hmm. So with adolescents, you may see, you know, parents making all of those decisions, what clothes they wear, um, who they can spend time with, who they can associate, just like with an adult, only the parent is, you know, the one making the decision versus adults, you may see just other people making this decision, I don't know if that makes sense. And that's um, got to be a little um, difficult because parents do make decisions for children a lot. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that, but there's a point in parenting where you begin to let the child make their own decisions and experience that and, you know, experience the consequence of it or the payoff from it. So there's got to be some fault. I don't know if fault is the right word, but parents who don't ever allow their children to make any of their decisions for themselves, that Mm -hmm. has to impact a person as an adult. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know how to make decisions for myself. I was never given the opportunity. Right, right. I was going to say, ideally, that's what mm-hmm. you want in a parent for them to 
get to that point. But Correct. It's not always the case. Right. Helicopter parents. Yes, I know. I know. I have actually been in meetings with teachers who say they've had parents of adult children calling them to talk about their grade in a class. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that I've only had one time a parent ever tried to involve themselves we've got laws it's just like the confidentiality laws in counseling we can't talk to anybody else but the student about their assignments their grades their stuff so we can't just engage with the parent it's difficult i mean Mm -hmm. if if a parent is so involved in that so people aren't going to be able to initiate independence you know they're not going to be able to work independently Well, and oftentimes individuals um, seek support and approval through others so much so that they cannot express like even their own opinions. Mm -hmm. They don't um, disagree with things. They just basically are kind of go with the flow, dependent on whoever's around them, whoever's making the decisions. And I immediately always think like the classic, what are we having for dinner? Like that can be, (laughs) you know, clinical. That can be an issue. Completely, completely. So I think it's a good idea to allow people to try to make a decision on their own and Mm. then work through that and see how it works. And people who are with dependent personality disorders, that's a very maladaptive coping mechanism, very dysfunctional Mm -hmm. and inflexible and can cause a lot of distress in a person's life. Now we get to talk about the fun one. (laughs) what's wrong with this one (laughs) sex addiction do you know that there are a lot of people who do not believe that it's real it is not real i hear even people say oh yeah you call it sex addiction when you get caught Mm. you know what's wrong with having a lot of sex i thought that was you know like when tiger woods had all of his issues and they became so public i heard comedians talk about it all the time like oh yeah it's sex addiction and he's in treatment now that he got caught like sex addiction is a real thing it interferes with your life in a very very negative way right just like with any other addiction it becomes something that's kind of all-consuming mm-hmm and as normal, we define things. So what's the definition of sex addiction? So sex addiction is defined as a lack of control over sexual thoughts, urges, and impulses. While sexual impulses are natural, sex addiction only refers to behaviors that are done in excess and significantly impact one's life in a negative way. Right. Negative way. Right. So, so maybe you have a lot of sexual thoughts. I mean, I, I've seen statistics about how often men and or, and or women have thoughts of sex and, and depending on your age, you know, it varies. So maybe you think about sex a lot, but a person with sex addiction is going to like at work, engage in behaviors that jeopardize their job mm-hmm. while you may be working on your computer trying to do your stuff and you think about who can't wait to go till I get home and we get to you know yiddly diddly do that's not sex addiction that's just a normal thought of sex the person with sex addiction is going to do something that is going to be that could be have negative consequences mm-hmm like searching for porn while mm-hmm. you're at work, yeah. you know, masturbating in the bathroom, computer. yes, yeah, uh, engaging in sexual relationships um, with people they work with, or mm-hmm. maybe even clients or customers or you know strangers. 
There, there are so many ways that, that, um, because you don't have to sexually act out with another person to have sex addiction. Right. You know? Well, and like love addiction, this is another one that's not listed um, as a diagnosable condition in the DSM. So, um, but it's all of the symptoms, you know, can be tied back to the same symptoms that you would experience if you were dealing with a substance abuse issue. And so people with sex addiction, they have a compulsive need to be sexually stimulated and it interferes with daily life, like I said, and it can, it can become, and it can come in many forms like sex acts, prostitution, watching pornography, masturbating, fantasies, exhibition, voyeurism. So a person doesn't have to actually engage in a sex act with another person to have sex addiction. Mm -hmm. I was um, talking to someone recently about uh, pornography and kind of what's a normal level of pornography watching versus, you know, a compulsion, an addiction type. And one of the ways that I've heard it explained is, you know, that instant gratification. So with pornography, if we, you know, click on something that we don't like, we can just click on the next thing and the next thing and the next thing until we get that thing that triggers that pleasure point. Mm -hmm. And um, that is part of why it's so addictive and part of why it's so problematic is because we don't have to be uncomfortable with it. We can just hit next. Mm -hmm. And the internet has increased our exposure to pornography. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, if you wanted to watch pornography, you had to jump through through some hoops to get to do it. <laughs> you had to interact with another person, you know, you had to make a purchase or you had to. And now you can just for free, click on the Internet and find whatever you want and whatever you fetish you have. And it is, you know, kids younger and younger and younger being exposed to pornography long before they even have the the thought or desire to search for it themselves. And it's really taking a toll on people. Mm -hmm. So there are some signs that uh, for people with sex addiction, even though, you know, it can manifest in a lot of different ways because people are different. So you will need a, a, a healthcare professional to make an actual diagnosis, but here are some of the symptoms that we put together for you. The first one on our list here is obsessive sexual thoughts. Um, so someone dealing with sex addiction may find themselves thinking just constantly about sex, um, just chronic thinking about sex, sexual fantasies. They become obsessive um, and, and ultimately interfere with other responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And spending excessive amounts of time on sex, you know, not necessarily... The act of yeah like it's not necessary that like if you seek sexual partners that you have sex addiction but if you're spending an excessive amount of time and energy on it it may be a red flag you know and, and that can include spending time attempting to acquire sex having sex being sexual recovering from the sexual experience just like the getting using and recovering from substances mm-hmm also, like substances, you may feel shame and depression around mm -hmm. it. Um, so it crosses over. Once it crosses over into the addiction, you know, side of things, there's oftentimes those those interpersonal conflicts that begin to happen, and you start feeling, you know, anxiety and shame and depression and regret. You feel shame about the urges and and the 
thoughts and the difficulty controlling the urges. Some people even show like clinical signs of depression and, and that can lead to suicidal ideations. Uh, some of the research that we found said that, you know, it's not uncommon for people who are sexually compulsive to also show signs of depression and anxiety. Um, also, social anxiety is a big one. One study found that among sexual compulsive men, 28% showed signs of depression compared to 12% of the general population, folks wow. that didn't struggle. Wow, that's, that's a lot. That, that's significant. Mm-hmm. Another of the signs is excluding other activities, you know, just like we talk about so much with substance addiction, you know, a person that has an addiction to sex fixates on the sex to the point where they don't engage in other activities. So responsibilities at work, at school, at home become less important. They socially withdraw. They prioritize sex, the sexual behavior over hobbies, friends, family, work, over everything. Another one that we talked about briefly um, was masturbating, masturbating excessively. So, you know, masturbation is normal. It's something that can be a healthy way to explore your sexuality and express, you know, your sexual drive. But excessive masturbation can be a sign of, of addiction. Compulsive masturbation at inappropriate times, inappropriate places, things that can lead to physical harm and discomfort, pain, that's going to be a sign that it's past the normal point. I find myself having this com- this conversation with couples, you know, especially a lot of the couples, you know, by the time they get into therapy or struggling in the sex department, the intimacy department, and a lot of times men are masturbating in place of, and I think masturbation is a normal thing, even if you're in a relationship, but I think if you replace the time and the experience with your partner with masturbation. And that's something that I hear sometimes that it's just easier to masturbate than to, you know, engage in the act of and kind of Uh everything that leads up to it. Exactly. Um, When you replace things with it, then that's a sign that there's a problem. There's an issue. I knew a person in recovery from sex addiction and they talked about how like, oh, you may have like a a feeling of, of you might feel sexual at, you know, while you're at your desk working and you may, oh, I can't wait to get home. But a person with sex addiction will go into the bathroom at work and mm-hmm. masturbate, which is a high risk behavior, but they're willing to take the risk because it is so compulsive. Right. And right. It, it's just something they can't get out of their mind until they have um, met the, the physical need that they feel. And that kind of leads me into the next one, the engaging in risky or inappropriate behaviors. Um, so sex addiction can lead to inappropriate risky sexual behaviors like exhibitionism, sex in public, sex without protection, sex with uh, sex workers. And that can sometimes lead to like sexually transmitted diseases. There are studies that show that people who identify as sexually compulsive are more likely to get um, sexually disease, uh, transmitted diseases, even HIV. Mm Mm-hmm. It can also lead to cheating on your partner. So a lot of sex addiction leads to, you know, that feeling of being compelled to have sex with other people, with new people, oftentimes leads to extramarital affairs, one night stands. So it becomes something that you start to act on outside of the relationship. And that definitely is, again, a sign. Absolutely. Because it's usually not an emotional thing. It's like a Mm -hmm. The person that has the addiction feels like it's a need. Yeah. 
And that could even lead to committing sexual crimes, you know, and in extreme cases, people may engage in criminal activity, stalking, rape, and some sexual offenders may also be sex addicts, but it doesn't mean that sex addicts are sexual offenders. That's so important. This is not about a person being um, a perpetrator. Mm -hmm. So how do we treat it? Can be treated? Good question, because there are many theories on this. You know, some people think it can't be treated. Um, I fall into the category of belief that it can be treated because it is an addiction. Sexual perpetration and people who are uh, child molesters, that may not be able to change. There's a big lots of debate on that, too. I have opinions. I guess I won't get into that now. But remember, this is sex addiction and it can be treated. And there are sex therapists. There are certified um, sex therapists. Texas has a certification for it. So really depends on the underlying cause, how it kind of comes up in a person's life. But treatment may work. It'll vary depending on the person. And there, you know, and, and whether or not sex addiction is coupled with co-occurring occurring disorders, anxiety disorders, mood disorders. You know, some people may need medication, some people may not, but there are treatments like one-on-one therapy. You can go to therapy. You talked about cognitive behavioral therapy in our previous episode that works with sex addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, EMDR, the eye movement and desensitization and re- re- uh, reprocessing is a great therapy for a lot of things, but it also works with some sex addiction, uh, psychodynamic therapy, group therapy, support groups, treatment, couples counseling, marriage counseling. Somebody with sex addiction is likely going to have to have help outside of themselves. Mm-hmm. And great, great support, community-based sex addicts anonymous, like mm-hmm. another 12-step program that's available. Yep. And those are in tons of places. All over. So the last one that we were going to go over is called erotomania. Mm. And erotomania is when you think someone is in love with you, um, but they're not. That was narcissism. (laughs) (laughs) It could be somebody that you've never even met, like Mm. a famous person, a politician or an actor. Uh. Um, But you're you can be the person can be so sure that they're in love with them that they think that they're in a relationship with the person and are not able to accept the facts that prove otherwise wow that's difficult yeah it's rare yeah because i've not i've not had a client with this diagnosis before me either and i know that in the research we've done that part of what we found out was we know that it can be a diagnosis of its own, but it's usually linked to another mental health condition. And that may also be why we haven't seen it a lot and that it shows Mm -hmm. up in our uh, diagnostic manual under delusional disorders. It's a kind of a characteristic is delusion, paranoia. Infatuation. Mm Mm-hmm. Lots of it sounds like a little stalker, stalker vibe. That's what I. That's what I get, and and with quite a large ego. Mm-hmm. Well, and it talked about how it can last, you know, weeks or it can even last years, depending mm-hmm. on the person. And there were some symptoms that came up when we were kind of looking through 
what erotomania consists of, um, like who's at risk, and then some some symptoms and things that it can be associated with. Right. I know that it shows up after puberty, usually around midlife or later, and there may be some genetics involved. Like delusions can run in your family, but also the environment, of course, and your over your overall mental health condition plays a role in it in this diagnosis, like like a lot of them. Mm-hmm. But that there are some definite definite common traits of people with erotomania. What do those include? Low self-esteem, a feeling of loneliness or rejection, social isolation, and trouble seeing other people's points of view. I've seen some of that in people. Yeah. I'm with you kind of I think of narcissistic <laughs> narcissism, you know. Thinking someone's in love with you. I think about that that guy, if I knew his name, it would probably be much better. But the one that he killed the actress, he he took a bus from like Arizona to California, maybe another state, but he's the one that prompted all the stalking laws we now have because he thought that this actress was in love with him and he just wow. showed up at her house that happened when... to um was it versace the... yeah and um versace and who's the other one that lived in california that might have been versace the one yeah. that was shot right on yeah, his steps, on his steps. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah unbelievable and it, uh, taylor swift has had a stalker who like showed up in her house Oh, wow. Slept in her bed. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. That's scary. <laughs> many, many people have. I think a lot of celebrities kind of keep it on the down low because they don't want people to get ideas or think they get attention from it. Mm-hmm. We know Jodie Foster. She her, she probably had the most notable one that um, attempted to assassinate the president, uh, Ronald Reagan. Wow. Did not know that. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of difficult mental health conditions. Let's see, erotomania can be a symptom of a condition that affects how you think, like other ones like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, brain tumors, drug or alcohol um, addictions, and dementia, although it's rare um, that a de- that a uh, dementia is associated in any way with erotomania. But I know we did come across some possibilities of what might cause this. So some of the things that might cause it um, is basically when you have a delusional disorder, Um, you may not process like social cues or be able to read body language or somebody's expressions, things like that. You may think that people are flirting with you when they're actually not. Mm -hmm. Um, And that makes you think that they're interested in you. Um, And that idea just kind of gets planted and grows over time. And this happens especially to people that spend a lot of time Mm. alone. I know that we found that we aren't sure why it happens, but if you have a low self-esteem, you might tell yourself, you know, untrue things, untrue stories just to make you feel, feel better. And social media can definitely worsen delusional beliefs Mm. that some people have because you know, we, we see people online and we feel like we know them, but we really don't know them. You know, Mm -hmm. we may not even, they may not even recognize us. I can see how celebrities would play a huge part in this because they're sharing 
parts of their lives with public and the public then thinks it's like a mutual relationship Mm -hmm. when they don't know anything about the people that are following them usually. Yeah. We went to out to like a bar not too long ago and someone that I follow on Instagram was there and I was like, should I go talk to him? Because I feel like I know this person. Mm -hmm. Like we've interacted online, but we've never actually met in real time. And so I did and it was like an interesting encounter um but it's it's weird how social media does that like it makes us feel like we're in contact and we know people that you know we don't we've never mm-hmm. met yeah i know the uh, celebrities that i've met are so good at treating you like they remember you mm-hmm. you know like some of the bands and stuff i've done meet and greets with and have multiple pictures with you know like Hey, yeah, I I saw you in Oklahoma, you know, and they'll say something that makes you think, yeah, you remember me, 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 Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and they meet hundreds and hundreds of people. So I can see social media is definitely, definitely in there. It makes us really think we're closer to people, even people we do know. I think we feel like we know them a little better now that we Mm -hmm. have social media. Yeah, it's very misleading. And I know that stress can trigger erotomania. If somebody like loses someone that they're close to, then they may search for somebody to replace that, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, may feel like this person that they've lost is still with them, you know, kind of in a, to, to help them feel safer. So some of the symptoms, some of the most obvious symptoms would be like um, just the wrong belief that someone has intense feelings for you. Um, Just kind of having having that idea that somebody is, you know, in a relationship with you and there's no validity to it. There's no, <laughs> there's no truth. There's no mm-hmm. proof. It might help um, like with their mood and with their self-esteem at first. Um, but then they start to get upset when someone tells them that it's not true. You know, when somebody calls them on it or mm-hmm. starts, you know, pointing out the facts that this is not actually, you know, a relationship, then they find themselves getting upset, angry, Um, And that can then lead to stalking and can lead to, you know, obsessive acts like messaging, texting, you know, reaching out, um, things like that. And you see, I can see how someone like gets upset with a celebrity because they're dating. Mm, Yeah. I don't want them to get married. They don't even know you. You don't even know them, but you are in love with them. Mm -hmm. Is erotomania dangerous then? Um, It can be. So the person may try to talk to the other person or see them, um, even when that could be, you know, a dangerous kind of scenario. Um, It can be scary to the other person. Mm -hmm. Um, In serious cases, it can lead to, again, stalking and harassment, Um, sometimes, you know, charges and things like that against those uh, or for those rather. The person may try to hurt themselves or the other person. Um, they may try to hurt the person who's telling them that it's not true. I know to diagnose it, there's not a test. There's no, you know, there's no, no kind of test or anything that you can do. So a psychiatrist or a psychologist is who a person needs to go to if they suspect they might have this. And th- there is treatment for it, but the diagnosis would need to come from a, a psychiatrist or psychologist. Much like, you know, other addictions is, you know, things that can help like therapy, talk therapy, um, that would be the main source of treatment. Um, Sometimes medications can be prescribed. 
especially if this is associated with another disorder of some kind that may be, you know, like bipolar, you know, depression, things like that. So they may prescribe like a mood stabilizer, um, which then helps with underlying mental health issues, um, illnesses. And then there could even be involuntary treatment. So if you're at the point, if the person's at the point of being in danger to themselves or to others, then there might be a situation where they have to be hospitalized. Um, state laws kind of vary on that. Some of them, you know, can force you into some kind of treatment. Some you have to check yourself in. So it's going to kind of be dependent on the state and the person. Hard to get a person involuntarily committed unless mm -hmm. they are like really saying, yes, I'm going to hurt myself. Right. So we've talked a lot about dysfunction in relationships you know last episode we talked about a you know love versus love addiction and in this one we've talked about some care some dependent personalities what is a healthy relationship like what are the just you know little s characteristics of a, of a healthy relationship well, there are definitely some things that you can do. There's also a previous episode on this. If you want to go back and listen, we talk yeah. about uh, dysfunctional and healthy relationships. But, you know, some of the things um, that you can do may consist of, you know, making sure that you have trust in one another. You know, that's really important in a healthy relationship, not questioning everything that's being done in every scenario, um, checking phones and tracking and all that stuff. Um, just having that mutual respect for one another. And openness and honesty, you know, in a relationship that's healthy, you should be able to feel like you can be yourself. You can be who you are and talk about the things that you need to talk about. You can self-disclose. And maintain your individuality. Like that's like your, your individual identity is really important in a relationship. Like sometimes people become so enmeshed with one another that they lose themselves. And so, you know, being able to maintain your identity, I think, is really important. And also mutual respect, you know, you listen to one another, you understand, you forgive, you build each other up, not tear each other down. You know, you're supporting and encouraging of one another. Mm -hmm. Expressing your fondness and your affection towards um, each other is really important. So being intimate, um, sexual relations, all of that stuff, super important. Yeah, even when it's not early in the relationship, throughout the right. relationship. And good communication. There was a study that found that a couple's communication style was more important than stress, commitment, and personality when looking at predicting whether married couples would eventually divorce. I read something or saw something that um, said that couples that roll their eyes at each other are at a much higher likelihood of getting divorced or really? separating and I thought that was funny because I roll my eyes all the time with polo <laughs> it's like, like it's just like a running joke it's like an, maybe the, the thing there's like an underlying resentment or something right right but that's, that's funny <laughs> um and then give and take you know making sure that you're able to compromise um that's such an important piece of a healthy relationship because it can't be you know one person getting their way all the time if that happens there's just so many resentments and things that can build um so just being able to you know have conversations communicate and then understand that sometimes sometimes you win and sometimes you learn oh i like it i like <laughs> That. I can't take credit for that. That was, I think we talked about this in a previous episode too, that senior citizens pageant I went to, the lady said, um, if you're not winning, you're learning. I love that. 
So if you know someone who struggles with sex addiction, consider reaching out to Sex Addicts Anonymous. It's a 12-step program and their primary purpose is to help people recover from sexual addiction. And it's not therapy. It's a peer-based program. You can do it online or in person and it's completely free. And you can learn more about SAA at their website, saa-recovery.org or call them 713-869-4902. Well, as always, everybody, don't forget that knowledge leads to a life lived better. Thank you for listening to Life Lived Better with Paula and Joseph.